Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Dave Zirin at his March 19th visit to Southdale Library in Edina. Dave Zirin, correspondent and sports editor for The Nation, is the author, most recently of Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. His newest expose, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, turns attention on the volatile political situation in Brazil in the run-up to the 2014 World Cup and 2016 Summer Olympics. It's due out this June. Named one of UTNE Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Our World, Zyron is a frequent guest on MSNBC, ESPN, and Democracy Now! He also hosts his own weekly Sirius XM show, Edge of Sports Radio. So I write about the intersection of sports and politics. That's what I do. And just, uh, I like getting the, the pulse of an audience when I talk about this. Like, how many people here consider yourselves like diehard sports fans? Okay, how many people here consider yourselves casual sports fans? You know what's happening. And how many of you would rather shave your head with a cheese grater than hear somebody talk about sports? <laughs> Great, well, what's your name, ma'am? Emily. Emily, okay. So the goal for the rest of my time in front of you here is I want to try to do a talk that is interesting for the diehard sports fans, the casual sports fans, and Emily. If I can do that, then we'll be squared away. I mean, I grew up one of those diehard sports fans. I love sports. I, I watch sports. I was the starting center for my high school basketball team. Uh, we sucked. I'm not tall. That's a prerequisite for Emily. You good to be tall if you're a center. Okay. Um, I played baseball. I, I played every sport except golf, which is not a sport. Um, you know, it's my own personal belief that anything. Truth. Thank you. Anything that you can gain weight or smoke cigarettes while doing is not a sport. It's a blanket rule. It's a, it's a good thing because, like, softball, that's a sport. Beer league softball with a keg on every base, it's not a sport. You're, you're just drinking with a bat. Um, and, you know, never gave too much thought to politics until 1996. I was in college at a place you might have heard of called McAllister, the Fighting Scots. Woohoo. All right, done with that. Um, and, you know, I was, there was a basketball player for the Denver Nuggets named Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. And he made the private decision that he wasn't going to come out for the national anthem before games. This was his personal decision. There was no press release. There was no uh, any sort of tweet or Facebook. We would not have known what those meant. And he just wasn't coming out for the national anthem. And a reporter got wind of it, followed him into the locker room, and asked him a very basic question, which is, why are you doing this? And he said, I don't feel comfortable mixing that kind of patriotism with what is just supposed to be a sporting event. It's not like you play the national anthem at the movies. I don't feel like it should be a part of basketball. 
And the reporter said to him, but don't you realize that that flag is a symbol of freedom and democracy throughout the world? And you got to see the video of this because Raouf, he gets this sort of twinkle in his eye like, should I say something? And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to say something. And he says, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. Now, when he said this, the sports world lost its damn mind. Like, if Twitter was around back then, it would have broken Twitter when he said that. Because people went nuts. But back then, we're like racing to our dorm for the 7 p.m. sports center in the lounge to see what's the latest and what people are saying. And ESPN was all over it. They were like, Rauf spits on the flag. Booyah! Dan in it. Dan in it. And, and we're like, whoa, this is crazy. And I'll never forget that one of the talking heads said, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf must see himself as one of those athlete activists like Muhammad Ali or Billie Jean King. And I remember hearing that, seriously, like it was yesterday. I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, athlete activist, what the, what the heck is that? Like, I thought I was this big sports fan, and I had never heard of people using sports to project politics. It was just something that had been sort of cut out of my own personal knowledge about sports history, as if there was a political root canal taken, and all the sharp teeth were taken out of the mouth of sports. I didn't know anything about it. So I went to the library, I started reading about it, I started doing some research, microfiche, microfilm, these kinds of things. You know, no, people like get a little nostalgic for those things, the big machines and whatnot. And I learned that sports was this incredible societal lens. And everything I thought I knew about sports was really wrong. Like I had grown up thinking I knew who Jackie Robinson was. If you'd asked me who Jackie Robinson was, First of all, how many people here saw the movie 42? Okay, there are 42 problems with the movie 42. I can't get to them all. But as I, I was like reading about Jackie Robinson, I was thinking to myself, wow, what I thought I knew about Jackie Robinson was that he was the first African-American player to play Major League Baseball. And then you do the research and you learn that that's actually not true, that African-Americans played Major League Baseball in the 19th century. In fact, the, there were first time there was Major League Baseball. They were integrated with players like Moses Fleetwood Walker, and they were pushed out of the sport as part of the establishment of Jim Crow in the American South in the 1870s and 1880s. And this was true throughout sports. I mean, it's a remarkable thing to think about that sports was integrated after the Civil War, and then with the backlash to Reconstruction in this country in the 1870s, 1880s, Sports was specifically targeted by the government and by Southern society as a place that had to be separated. And it got so ridiculous to such crazy extremes that you had sports back then, which I think by any measure we would call uh, barbaric, like, like there were sports called bull baiting, where um, there would be two teams of people who had buckets filled with rats, and the rats would be different colors, and you would sick them on a bull and whosoever rat killed the bull, you would win that particular, like that was like a sport that people thought was fun to do. And you know, PETA, not around then, probably for the best. And those sports were legal, yet you couldn't have a black person who owned some of the rats and a white person who owned some of the rats and they would compete against each other. So everything had to be segregated when it came to sports. Uh, the, the Kentucky Derby is one of the most potent examples. Because 1875, the first Kentucky Derby, 17 of the 18 jockeys are African American. By 1890, it's all white, entirely white. In fact, there was only one sport that stayed integrated during this time. Anyone want to guess what that was? 
It was boxing. Who said boxing? Very good. Yeah, I got a historian in the house. That's right on. And because boxing, I mean, but it didn't wasn't integrated because the people who ran it were Quakers or anything. I mean, it <laughs> was integrated because it was a way to make money off of racism. You put a white boxer against a black boxer, and all kinds of money could flow thereof. And so what I thought I knew about Jackie Robinson just wasn't true. And then what I thought I knew about the person wasn't true either because I really was raised with this idea. You know, my dad uh, from Brooklyn loved Jackie Robinson. I wasn't allowed to be a Yankee fan under penalty of excommunication from the family. That's why I'm a Mets <laughs> fan. And my, my dad always said like Jackie, and you hear this a lot, and I, I would argue the movie 42 presented this, that Jackie Robinson fought racism the right way. He just kept his mouth shut. He endured all the abuse and he was successful. And through his individual greatness, he challenged people's perceptions about segregation and about institutionalized racism. And that actually wasn't true. I mean, Jackie Robinson was somebody who actually made speeches where he said, if you think by my individual success, that means racism is over, that is wrong. Please do not let my success confuse us from the fact that the mass of people are suffering. And you could make the case that he spent the last 20 years of his life fighting the myth that was constructed around him in the 1940s. And when he passed away at age 52, look at the pictures of him. He looks 92. The toll it took on him, not just the racism he endured as a player, but actually fighting this perception, this mainstream perception that everything was A-OK -okay because Jackie Robinson make, made it and that was the problem. And it's an amazing story. And what you learn also, which I was never taught, is that Jackie Robinson was actually a barnstorming speaker for civil rights in the 1950s. I mean, the, the, the images, and you read the speeches that he gave. And in doing my research for, for one of my books, I learned that Jackie Robinson was the number one most requested speaker for southern branches of the NAACP. The number two most requested speaker was someone you might have heard of named Martin Luther King. And I always found that very amusing because you imagine people like organizing a meeting and one of them says, okay, can we get Jackie Robinson? He's busy. All right, let's get Dr. King. Darn it, I can't believe Jackie Robinson's busy. This King guy is coming. You know, but that's how popular he was. And he would always end his speeches the same way. He would say, if I had to choose tomorrow between the Baseball Hall of Fame and full citizenship for my people, I would choose full citizenship time and again. And people would absolutely go nuts and they would clap and they would applaud. And that's who Jackie Robinson was. But it's not a Jackie Robinson we learn about. It's not a Jackie Robinson we know. We certainly don't learn about the Jackie Robinson who said towards the end of his life, if I see somebody with an American flag decal on their car, I know immediately that that's not my friend. That's a Jackie Robinson quote, but you wouldn't know it. The other person who I realized I'd been just so misinformed about was you know, the person who said, you know, I hospitalized a rock, I beat up a brick, I'm so bad I make medicine sick, ah. <laughs> I was going with Emily there, see if she does, you wouldn't have gone, okay. That, that's Muhammad Ali. And today, Muhammad Ali, you know, he's so popular and so incredibly beloved, he's like the closest thing we have in this country to like a, a walking saint in many respects. And you would never know that in the 1960s, like he was absolutely despised by all sectors of the establishment uh, because he joined the Nation of Islam and because of his stance, of course, as the most famous draft resistor in the history of this country. And I'll tell you, I gotta tell you this funny story. I, I was doing a book talk in a city I don't wanna name. All right, it was Philadelphia. And, um, and it was for my first book, which is called What's My Name Fool? And the cover of the book 
is like a big mahogany. Do you have a copy of it right there? Thank you. What's your name again? Dimitri. Dimitri. Thank you, Dimitri. Right, give it up for Dimitri. Round of applause here. Thank you so much. Like, like I'm a magician. Thank you so much. You're a good sport. But no, but this is the cover of the book. So you see it? Like big Muhammad Ali face. And that's all it is, a face. It's my first book. So I went to Philadelphia. Thank you, Dimitri. And I went in the bookstore and I said to the guy behind the counter, I said, hey, I'm here to do, uh, what's my name, fool? I'm, I'm here to do the talk. And he said to me, but, but you're white. And I was like, well, yeah, last I checked. And he said to me, but isn't that you on the cover of your book? You're the what's my name, fool guy. And I had to be like, no, that's Muhammad Ali. That's not me. But it was so stunning to me that here's this person, Muhammad Ali, and like this famous draft resistor, this famous political activist, and he wasn't known. And not only was he not known, it's also not known at all what in fact he actually sacrificed and why he was so hated. And I want to give a reason why he was so despised. One reason is that he made speeches where he said things like this. I mean, I, now, as I say this, I want you to just think to yourself, this is the most famous athlete in the United States with an unparalleled platform. So don't think of this as just a political speech. Think about this speech and imagine LeBron James giving it, for example. Like imagine an athlete of fame beyond compare. Imagine Michael Jordan, oh, don't imagine Michael Jordan doing it. That's not, that's too, not fair to Muhammad Ali. So, so this is what he says. He says, why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights. This is the day when such evils must come to an end. I've been warned that to take such a stand would cost me millions of dollars, but I've said it once, I will say it again. The real enemy of my people is here. I'll go to jail, so what? We've been in jail for 400 years. And the mobbed up fight world lost their minds. And people might know the story about how he was stripped of his title in 1967, about how his very name became a referendum on how people felt about the war in Vietnam, about the African-American freedom struggle. Like you could go into a barber shop and if you had some people say like, hey, who do you like in the fight tonight? I like Muhammad Ali. And then other people would say, oh, well, I like Cassius Clay. And then, ooh, you immediately knew what they thought about a whole host of political issues. The New York Times, which has this reputation as being this very liberal newspaper, of course, they had an editorial policy against using his name, Muhammad Ali, until 1970. Six years after he changed his name, they had an editorial policy to list him as Cassius Clay. And I want to give just one example of the hate that he had to deal with and how unbalanced it was. See, one thing back then in those pre-internet days is that a small group of sports columnists had unbelievable amounts of power in terms of shaping public opinion. There was less noise, which is, a, I think, in some ways a good thing. But the bad thing is that the noise that there was wasn't always the best of noise. And I want to read a person who was arguably the most famous sports columnist of the time. His name was Jimmy Cannon. And he's, this is what he said about Muhammad Ali, and of course he calls him Clay, because that's what he did. He said, Clay fits in with the famous singers no one can hear, and the punks riding motorcycles, and Batman. I don't get that. <laughs> and the boys with their long, dirty hair and the girls with the unwashed look, and the college kids dancing naked at secret proms. That wasn't my college. <laughs> and the revolt of students who get a check from dad, and the painters who copy the labels off soup cans. It's an Andy Warhol attack for some reason. Andy Warhol's <laughs> like, what did I do? Um, and surf bums who refuse to work, and the whole pampered cult of the bored young. 
I mean, that's like something the Unabomber would write, but this guy was that, like that angry at the very existence that this athlete, this fighter, this black boxer would dare use his hyper-exalted, brought to you by Adidas platform to say something about the world in which he lived. But his influence was profound, extremely profound. Uh, Nelson Mandela had a secret pipeline at Robben Island when he was in uh, when he was in solitary confinement where news of Muhammad Ali's fights would get to him so he would know if he won or lost. And when he found out he won, as he said, it felt like the walls were that much thinner. Uh, another example is Dr. Martin Luther King himself. Uh, Dr. King, when he came out against the war in Vietnam in 1967, which was extremely controversial at the time, and he did it um, against the advice of his top advisors. In his speech where he announced his opposition to the war, he said, well, it's like Muhammad Ali says, all these issues are connected. So he cited Muhammad Ali as a way to explain why he was taking this historic step. It's unbelievable. But the coolest thing about Muhammad Ali, the thing that has gone largely forgotten by history books, and which is in this terrific documentary that just came out called The Trials of Muhammad Ali, is that it's 1968. He's banned from boxing. He's got no money coming in. He's been already sentenced to five years in a federal prison for evading the draft, but he's out, on, he's out on bail and he's appealing to the Supreme Court. He has no money. So what he and his wife do in 1968 is they say, screw it, and they go on a college speaking tour. And so here's a boxer, and he speaks at roughly 200 colleges over the course of the year in 1968. It's about four colleges a week. And in these speeches, he would stand up there, and it's really interesting. The Trials of Muhammad Ali charts his evolution in these speeches. In the beginning of the year, I mean, he's, Muhammad Ali in some ways was kind of a conservative guy because as, as a Muslim, he certainly did not believe in drugs. He did not believe in drinking. Um, his opinions on women at that time were very retrograde. And so he would be up there in 1968 speaking to these very left-wing audiences who loved him because he came out against the war. And he would, be, he would say things like, what's that smell? That better not be that marijuana smoke. And people would be like, what? What are you talking about? Of course it's that marijuana smoke. And, um, but by the end of the year, it's like he had actually developed with his audience and became a much more natural speaker and a much more political person. And by the end of the year, he would end his speeches by saying, can they take my title without me being whooped? And everybody would yell, no. And he would say, who's the real champ? And all these hundreds of young people, they would go, Ali, Ali. And he would go, ah. And what's so interesting is you have the New York Times, they'll call him Clay, and you've got students across the country calling him Ali. So you have two Americas defined so clearly by this one fighter. And that's a part of the history, and we gotta know this context. Now, I could go on and on about this all day because I think it's an amazing lens to look at the African-American history through sports. You could teach entire courses on it. You could do entire talks on it. Um, I didn't even get to the 1968 Olympics with John Carlos and Tommy Smith who raised their fists at those games. I wrote a book with John Carlos, his autobiography called The John Carlos Story. And so I was, I was like immersed in that story and everything that went into that moment when they raised their fists. I mean, it's a pretty amazing story actually. I, I mean, if, we, if people know the image that I'm talking about, they raised the fist. I, I will say a couple things about it just because it, it's so amazing, is that people know that moment of them raising their fist, but they don't know that there was a movement called the Olympic Project for Human Rights that had lasted for two years of organizing. And they had this whole idea that they were gonna organize an African-American boycott of the Olympic Games and sympathizers, anybody who wanted to do it. But they were gonna boycott the Olympics on the question of four key points. And they were raising these four demands loudly for two years. 
The first, South Africa and Rhodesia. Disinvite them from the Olympics. They're apartheid countries. Uh, the second demand, Avery Brundage. Get him out of there. He was the head of the International Olympic Committee at the time. He was roughly just to the right of Hitler. So you didn't like him too much. You know, didn't, not, not really exaggerating. He actually was a big Hitler fan. So they wanted Avery Brundage out of there. Third demand, hire more African-American coaches. Their fourth demand, restore the title of Muhammad Ali. And they called him the warrior saint of the black athletes revolt. So you see Ali's influence in them making this move. Now the boycott didn't go through, but John Carlos and Tommy Smith, these two runners in the 200 meter Olympics, they said, we still have to make a stand. We have to do something. So they came up with this great idea. They said, all right, we're gonna bring gloves, black gloves, so we can raise them to the heavens after we're on the medal stand. Uh, we're gonna bring beads and we're gonna put them around our necks to protest lynching. We're going to wear black t-shirts over the USA in our uniforms. We're gonna wear black socks that we're gonna pull up to our knees. Yeah, let's do it. So they had this great plan. But what did they have to do first? They had to win. I mean, it would've been a disaster if they'd come in like seventh and eighth and been like, oh, we got all this stuff. But <laughs> they were so confident in their own abilities. And I really wanna encourage people to go on YouTube and actually watch the race. Because if you're a sprinter, the one thing that you always do 100 meters, 200 meters is your eyes straight forward. Watch this race and you'll see John Carlos gets a lead and he's constantly looking backwards over his left shoulder. Where's Tommy? Where's Tommy? And John said to me for the book, he might have been embellishing a little, but he said that he said under his breath, come on, Tommy, stop bullshitting. <laughs> Which is tough, a little, that's a little tough to believe, but he's definitely looking back, looking back. Where's Tommy? Where's Tommy? And he's looking back so much that when Tommy finally gets his kick, he doesn't notice that there's another guy right over here who nips him for the silver, and that was an Australian runner named Peter Norman. So then they were ready to go on the medal stand. Peter Norman knew what they were gonna do, and he wore a patch that said Olympic Project for Human Rights to show his solidarity with them. And when they got up on that medal stand and they raised their fists, there was a worry. And the worry was, Tommy looked at John and he said, what if we get shot? And this was not the craziest thing to say. You have to think, this is October 1968. Think about what's happened that year. Dr. King, Bobby Kennedy, hundreds of Mexican students and workers were killed right before the Olympics started. And it's also not like, think about stadiums back then. It's not like you had metal detectors or anything. So the idea of them being shot was very real. Tommy says to John, what if we get shot? And John says to him, well, you know we're trained to listen for the gun. <laughs> I love that. And, and he says, and you know we're fast, so let's do it. <laughs> so they get up on the stand, they raise their fists, and as John says, and he has a sort of like a very particular way of talking, he says, you could have heard a frog piss on cotton. That's how quiet it got. And then the booze started, and then garbage started to be thrown at them, and then they started a journey of just having to pay a, a terrible price over the course of decades for what they did. But as John Carlos says, he, I, I asked him when we did the book, I said, do you have any regrets about what you did? You know, you had decades of not being able to find work, shut out of the track and field establishment, all of, all of these issues, horrible things that happened with his family. And I said, do you have any regrets? And he said, I regret nothing. Do you know who has regrets? The people who were there in 1968 and didn't do anything. Because today, people, when they hear they're at those 68 Olympics, people always say to him, were you one of those guys? and then they have to say no. And so that's the John Carlos story, and that's the Tommy Smith story too. And Tommy Smith was, um, not Tommy Smith, I'm sorry, John Carlos was recently in the news a lot uh, because before the Sochi Olympics, uh, Billie Jean King 
said over and over again in several interviews that she hoped one of the athletes would do a quote-unquote John Carlos moment. That's how she described it. And very interesting that she didn't say a Tommy Smith John Carlos moment, but just a John Carlos moment. Now, why did she say that? Because John Carlos believes very strongly in equal rights for LGBT people, and Tommy Smith uh, was saying things like, well, I don't want to get into that issue. And John, so, so that's why she was going, saying, we need a John Carlos moment. So I thought that was a pretty awesome act of solidarity on behalf of, uh, of, Billie, of Billie Jean King, recognizing John. So obviously, like I said, you can tell a lot about African-American history through this, but you could also tell the entire history of women in the 20th century by looking at sports. And, I, and I'd be very, 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 uh, very, very bad speaker if I didn't speak a little bit about this. So talk a little bit about this. I said before that golf is not a sport. Well, for women at the turn of the 19th century, wealthy women, golf was one of the only options they had as far as sports to play. For most women, sports was something they were simply denied. But for wealthy women, there was this new thing called a country club. And at these institutions, there was golf, not a sport. Uh, there was horseback riding. And there was tennis. But tennis was not very fun for women in the 19th century. And I want to take a second to explain why. Like, have you ever wondered why women's tennis is best of three sets instead of best of five. Well, it goes back to the fact that back then, the uniform for women who played tennis was a corset. Like a corset, as in cannot breathe, you are wearing a corset and playing tennis. And this continued to be the case at Wimbledon. Women wore corsets. And this continued to be the case for decades until the 1920s when a 15-year-old won Wimbledon by the name of Lottie Dodd. And she had gotten a corset exemption and was allowed to wear her school uniform. And she said to the people, the, the, the directors, the programmers of Wimbledon, she said to them afterwards that the tournament would have been so much better if my opponents had been able to breathe. And that led to the change. So what change did they institute at that time? Is they said, okay, we have a real problem here. Because these corsets mean that someone might actually die on the court. Like women were passing out at center court in Wimbledon because they're wearing these corsets. So they said, should we get rid of the corsets? They said, no, let's keep the corsets. But let's make it best of three sets instead of best of five. <laughs> so that's the origins of it being best of three and not best of five, so women could play in corsets without dying. But, but this was like, for, for women, what's so crazy about this is that for as long as there have been human societies, there has been sports and games, and as long as there have been sports and games, young girls, young women have played sports. It has been a part of society for women for, for eons. And yet in the late 19th century, you have the institutionalization, the same way I talked about how black people were moved out of sports that were integrated, you had women removed out of sports altogether. And it's remarkable, like you go back and read it, like the symmetry between the worlds of religion and the worlds of science with the same message, that women who play sports were in danger of everything from infertility to it somehow provoking them to become prostitutes, to it somehow provoking them to be lesbians. I mean, you read the text at the time, and it says so much more about who was actually writing it than any actual science or thought. It's like whatever their particular fixation was was what would happen to women if they got involved in sports. And I want to read one example of this. It's from a writer in the 1878 edition of what was called the American Christian Review. And it diagrammed the 12-step downfall of any woman who dared engage in the sinful world of croquet. And it is truly a slippery slope. Step one, social party. 
Step two, social and play party. Step three, croquet party. <laughs> Step four, picnic and croquet party. Step five, picnic, croquet, and dance. Step six, absence from church. <laughs> Step seven, immoral conduct. Step eight, exclusion from the church. Step nine, this one's my favorite, more croquet. <laughs> you got all that time, you're not in church. Step 10, poverty, which seems like a hell of a leap <laughs> at that point. <laughs> like from more croquet to poverty. I don't care if I'm poor, I got croquet to do. Step 11, shame and disgrace. And step 12, ruin. And you thought it was just croquet. And, but it's so important to say that this was not just the world of religion. This was not just the pulpit that was thundering this. This was the Journal of American Medicine as well, which like at the time, an invention had just come on the scene which was changing the relationship of women to physical activity. Does anybody want to guess what that invention was? The bicycle. Who said the bicycle? All right on this whole corner here. Y'all are like trivia challenge. We were just studying before we got Nice. Thank you so much. But so the, the bicycle was like just a revolutionary change and was very popular. I mean, and you go back, like the, the suffragettes, like Susan B. Anthony uh, said that the invention of the bicycle did more than any of my work ever could. Like Elizabeth Cady Stanton said that when women win the right to vote, they're going to go to the polls riding a bicycle. So everybody was super aware of how important the bicycle was, not the least of which is that you're not wearing a hoop skirt and a corset when you're riding a bicycle. And so this idea of movement, this idea of freedom, this idea of health, for goodness sakes, all represented in the bicycle. So the brave people at the Journal of American Medicine said this cannot be. So they produced a paper where they said that women, and just women, who ride bicycles were in danger of what they called, quote, the bicycle face. <laughs> Which consisted of, quote, a protruding jaw, wild staring eyes, and a strained expression. In other words, you look like Dick Cheney if you ride a bicycle. It's just a disaster for all concerned. Now, this, another paper wrote that for women who wanted to have children, to fall wrong on a bicycle could cause, this is an actual phrase they use, the implosion of the uterus. Now, I don't know why there's not an all-female punk band called Imploding Uterus yet, but I, I really want to encourage someone to start one. But, but this is the, and what you see throughout the 20th century is that the relationship of women to sports is always a social question. And it's not one of a line that just goes up and up and up. It's like when women are asserting their rights in the broader society, you see it reflect itself dramatically in the world of sports. And when you don't, you don't. Which is, and I think that's a very important way of understanding it. And it's also how we can understand that in these times today where you have such prevalence of incredible sexism in the mainstream media, that you actually have less coverage of women's sports now than you did 10 years ago, and less coverage 10 years ago than you did 20 years ago. Because the question is about what is the state of a real living, breathing movement for women in society? And then how does that reflect itself in the world of sports? And I think you could do a, a whole talk, a whole symposium about every single decade of the 20th century, like the 1920s. You know, the flapper, women asserting themselves. You have actually women athletes setting records that men couldn't even touch, particularly in the sports of swimming. In 1940s, you know, Rosie the Riveter 
and women going into the factory as men go off to war. You have the birth of the All-American Girls Baseball League that people might know from a, a league of their own, which is a pretty awful movie. I mean, it's like a Guantanamo-level torture watching that. But the story is really important, and, and it's an amazing hi history. Uh, 1970s, of course, Billie Jean King does not happen by accident. Billie Jean King, as she would tell you, was a product of the women's liberation movement. So all of these things um, play into each other. And of course, none of this is interesting unless we understand that this is also a living history. Like, I mean, I used to have to do talks where I would have to argue that sports and politics were connected and that people had to understand that it was connected. And it's like these days, I mean, look at what we're just coming off over the last couple of months. I mean, the Sochi Olympics. You, you don't have to be you know, Mr. Wizard to see that there was a political element to the Sochi Olympics. There was only a war that happened right in between the regular Olympics and the Paralympics. So it's like sports and politics are everywhere. Or like the fact that you have, L like I was talking about movements, the fact that LGBT athletes are asserting themselves now in unprecedented ways. And it's happening because LGBT people are asserting their visibility um, in society. And it's reflecting itself in the world of sports. And what's so interesting is that you have the sports world now really rushing to catch up with the rest of society. If Jackie Robinson came in a decade before the civil rights movement, now you have um, the prospect of the first ever openly gay male player in the NFL and Michael Sam, and the first uh, openly gay player in the NBA, Jason Collins. And you'll never hear me say good things about pro sports commissioners, but I actually really liked what the new commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, said about Jason Collins. And he said, like, look, this is not a moment for celebration or patting ourselves on the back because we are late. We are behind the times on this. And I like that because if there was a, a gay player in Major League Baseball, Bud Selig would be like, wow, isn't this about me? Can we have some sort of celebration to honor myself and my heroism at this wonderful moment? So it was just, I, I appreciated the humility about where sports is. And sure enough, when Michael Sam uh, did come out and tell everybody that he was going to, as he put it, live my own truth, uh, there were all these anonymous whispers that it would like prevent him from getting drafted. And it's interesting because you think about some of the, the language around like the bicycle face and croquet and whatnot. You had people saying to Sports Illustrated that there is a chemistry in every locker room and that the chemistry would be altered by the presence of a gay player. And like this idea that chemistry becomes altered because of gayness. And another um, person said to Sports Illustrated, once again anonymously, you can't have those kinds of distractions in a locker room. I mean, we would have good housekeeping beating down our door every day for interviews. And first of all, it's like if you're an NFL team and you're scared of the intrepid reporters at good housekeeping, you're probably yeah. in the wrong business. Um, but it's, it's just, it's just an, another example about how like sports in so many ways can be this incredible platform for resistance and this incredible way to reach people who just read the sports page, they don't read the front page, and to be opened up to politics in a way that they never were before. Yet sports also can be like this kind of carnival of reaction, this very backward place that holds on to the most antiquated ideas about who we are and what our potential is and what we're supposed to be. And I think by learning this history of sports, what it does is it actually empowers us uh, to know that when you see athletes today speak out, when you see uh, instances of athletes trying to use that hyper-exalted, now brought to you by Nike platform to say something about the world, that it actually has a real history. And I really do stand strongly with the words of one of my heroes, the historian Howard Zinn, who said, when I study history, I do it not because I want to learn more about the past, but because I want to change the future. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Dave Zirin and his work. 
In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question asker wonders how anyone knowledgeable with the situation can be a fan of the NFL when they know about all the things that tend to happen behind the scenes. How do I rationalize it? I'll tell you how I, because you know, it's, it's a very fair question because um, I've stopped watching college football for precisely the reason that I think the injustice is just too profound, that people are getting hurt on the field and they're not getting paid for it. And people are having these debilitating injuries and putting their lives at risk. And coaches make now insane amounts of money and they just signed a $6 billion contract uh, to, to, for this new college playoffs. And so it's just like, okay, this is just above and beyond disgusting. Uh, the NFL, I mean, the, the way I, I rationalize it and justify it to myself. First of all, I want to say that, that it's a process. And I have a lot of friends who are like, the more they hear about the brain injuries, they're like, I just can't watch this anymore. Or when they see a special about players who are bankrupt uh, within years after they leave, or when there's another incident of spousal abuse, which is something that's very endemic in the NFL, precisely because, I mean, what, what, I mean the more we learn about head trauma, the more we learn about that connection with violence inside the home. So there's a lot there. Um, one of the ways, I justify it is that first and foremost is I'm not a prohibitionist because I don't think that banning it would actually work. That's something Malcolm Gladwell has said that he's for banning uh, football. I think if we banned football, it would be like during prohibition and you would have like speakeasies in Texas where people would play tackle football without pads and kill each other in basements. So, I, I, so I'm not for that. Um, I look at it very much as a job, a union job and a very dangerous job. Um, it's a union workplace. Uh, it's a place where people are paid a lot of money, but for very short careers. And it's, it's very dangerous. And it's something that people are compensated for uh, with union protections or as many union protections as they can get. And so it's one of those things where it's like, I, I would like to live in a world where you didn't have a sport where people gave themselves permanent brain injury. Um, I'd also like to live in a world without coal mines. And, but it's like understanding that as long as we do have coal mines, as long as we do have football, I would like to make sure that the people who actually have to do the work are as protected as possible and are as compensated as fairly as possible and get every possible safety <coughs> precaution and, and, and protection. Because one thing is certain, I think that the NFL is like a cigarette. And you, know, you can make a bigger filter on a cigarette you can say it has less tar, you can put a Native American face on it and say it's an American spirit, and therefore it's all natural, but it's not cancer-free. And we can do things to, on the edges to make tackle football safer, and therefore also more palatable, but it's always gonna be dangerous. And there's every possibility that I could come here in a couple years, do this talk, and answer your question by saying, well, I don't rationalize it, because I don't watch it anymore, because it just got a little too far. So I'm, I'm, I'm on process. And, and it's, it, the difficult part is that it is, to me, an objectively very entertaining product. And that is very hard after a tough week to say, no, I'm not gonna relax and watch this. You know, people say sports are the new opiate of the masses. I get people ask me that a lot. And when I hear that, I always wanna respond like, well, what do you have against opiates? I mean, it's tough out there. You know, it's like, Sometimes you gotta relax. Any other questions? Uh, the gentleman there and then, yeah. right. Oh, and I wanna say I like your Packers shirt too. That's very, uh, 
rock and roll because you know the Packers. People ask me, do I like any owners? And the answer is no. But then I stop and say, well, I do like one group of owners. That's the Green Bay Packers owners. And I know saying that in Minnesota is a little sketchy, but like the idea of a, t a team that actually is owned by fans is far more progressive and just far more helpful on every conceivable level to a city or municipality than the way things are run in every other city. Our next question is about when playing the national anthem became the norm in American sports games. Um, it started in World War II as actually there was a bit of marketing behind it too because Major League Baseball was profoundly depleted by its best players because of World War II and which is interesting in and of itself about what it says about those times compared to this times that you had these star athletes and they were actually in the service uh, some of them in active combat and the anthem started to be played first as an act of patriotism and as a reminder of who wasn't there but also as a way to say to fans like hey you still need to come and support this product because Franklin Roosevelt the head of Major League Baseball at the time the commissioner um, who was Happy Chandler um, actually asked Franklin Roosevelt about should we cancel baseball and he said no that it's you know, important for normalcy for the country and whatnot and so the anthem was played as a way to say hey we do get there's a war going on and also you know it's good that you're supporting this even though the product on the field is is pretty awful and and so that's when it started what's so interesting is less that it started then and more that it's stuck that's more interesting because check so first you've got like the first half of the 20th century almost with no national anthem. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, why did it stick? I mean, in three words, it stuck because of the Cold War. And so it's like this idea, like, so to me, it's like the idea of keeping the anthem after World War II was also about almost keeping the country on a sense of permanent war footing uh, after World War II and justifying huge military budgets. And so I think it's very, very connected to policy in the 1950s. This audience member comments that Zyron is very opinionated and outspoken. They wonder when Zyron is a guest on MSNBC, ESPN, and other shows, if the networks or hosts ever try to rein him in. And what is it like being a talking head? No, here's the thing is I'm on ESPN roughly once a week, uh, about the same for MSNBC. Um, neither have ever paid me anything. And... There's a couple of thoughts around that. I mean, and there's some writers, and I, and I respect them a great deal, and they've done whole YouTube things about this, that like on general principle, you shouldn't go on TV unless you're being paid because people are actually benefiting from your labor and not getting paid from it. Um, I look at it as, as a trade-off because it's like if I don't sell books, you know, I'm, I'm back working at the Obam Pan, and I don't want to do that. So it's, so it's, I mean, not that it's not honest work, but it sucks, the toilets. It's about pastry and coffee. It's a whole thing. But, sorry, that was, that was disgusting. Um, but the, 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 the point, though, is because they don't pay me, it's like the, it, that also means that there's no real restrictions on what I can say. I can say whatever I want. And if I say something wrong and this has happened, they keep me off for a while. It's very high school. This next question is a two-parter. The first is, how do sports books published today differ from those published in, say, the 1950s or 60s, and why is this so? The next is whether it is true that the NFL is technically a nonprofit. Oh my God, it's so funny because it's like I could talk about sports books for hours, but then everybody would leave. But I find it fascinating. Like the history of sports books is something. I, God, that sounds so lame. Um, but I, I I love them so much. 
Um, let, let's, let's go through the, the, the two questions. First of all, yes, the NFL is a nonprofit. That means it gets eight trillion tax breaks and, and it has complete antitrust protections as well. And it's, it's complete and utter bullshit. And people ask, sorry, sorry. And then and people ask the question, like, how is it a nonprofit? How is this even possible? And the answer is, I mean, I wish you could, I could give an answer that justified its existence as a nonprofit on the grounds that it does this or it does that. But the answer is more simply that other than our friends, the owners of the Packers, these are some of the most wealthy and well-connected people in the United States. And so they don't want to pay taxes. And therefore, they don't because they have that kind of power and they have that kind of juice. It's as simple as that. Uh, more appropriate for this month is that people should know that the NCAA is also a nonprofit, which is completely ridiculous as well. And they get 90% of their operating revenue from the $10.8 billion contract, that, a television contract that goes into March Madness in the Final Four. So it's just, it's complete and utter, utter ridiculousness and it speaks to their power and privilege. But there is actually a, a campaign, an online campaign, a petition campaign, to get the nonprofit status of the NFL stripped. And it's, what's so interesting about it is you think about this being an NFL mad country, and there's no question it is. I mean, this petition has crazy number of signatures. Like, it's hugely popular. And it just goes to one of my general theories. I wrote a book about sports owners, is that people do love sports, but that doesn't mean they like owners. And there's a difference. And I think people oftentimes, not in every city, but in many, many cities, people are able to distinguish between the game and what they see and whoever the jerk is in the owner's box who's making it that much more expensive, that much more difficult uh, for everybody involved. Not to mention getting billions of dollars in tax money for new stadiums. I know you guys in the Twin Cities would have no idea what it feels like, but it feels <laughs> terrible to have tax money go to a new stadium. It's an awful feeling. Um, and it, it's unbelievable because... You know, it's like I, I went to college here. I went to the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome a bunch of times. And, you know, and I know, I know it was kind of like playing in a big hefty bag. And uh, Billy Martin had that, you know, people know Billy Martin's famous line. People know that. Some nodding of the head. He walked in when he was manager for the first time and he said, for God's sakes, why would Hubert Humphrey's parents name him after this dump? And I, I, and I get that. But, but when you have an owner like Carl Polad, who was the, was the richest owner in Major League Baseball, the idea that he would choose to spend his money and really spend the last 25 years of his life trying to make sure that the taxpayers got him a new stadium um, instead of just paying for it himself. I mean, it just says also so much about the last 25 years of American economic policy as well as envisioned in that one stadium project and the collusion between political and private interests. And we won't even get started on Ziggy Wolf. Now, as for, I, I will say this, uh, that you mentioned, what's your name, sir? Don. Don mentioned a book called uh, Sports World, An American Dreamscape, right? American Dreamland. Um, this might be my favorite all-time book. I think it's out of print. It's by Robert Lipsight. It's an unbelievable sports book. It came out in the early, yeah, came, came out in the early, early 70s, early mid-70s, I think. And that's very important because what you see, and I, and I talk about this in People's History of Sports, is that you don't get that kind of rebel sports writing or people using sports writing as a critique or sports writing as a lens. You really don't see that until the late 1960s and early 1970s. And you don't see a jock do it until Jim Bouton writes Ball Four. Uh, he was a marginal pitcher for the Yankees and for uh, the, what was known as the Seattle Pilots. And his book about uh, you know, the clubhouse and just about people being bored and about players kissing to pass the time on team buses, I mean, earned him 
so much hatred by the establishment in Major League Baseball, but then it basically became the template for all sports biographies to come after. And that's what really cracked things open a little bit. Our next audience member asked Zyron what he is working on currently, and also what happened to the activism at the Sochi Olympics that everyone expected? Where was that John Carlos moment? That's a fantastic question. Um, the second one is a huge question, and it's something a lot of people are thinking about right now. Like, what, what happened to the activism that everybody expected to see uh, in Sochi? But, so, but let's get to the, to the first one first about Brazil. It's like, yeah, I got a book coming out in May called Brazil's Dance with the Devil, um, the devil being the International Olympic Committee and FIFA. And I got into the project very naively on just the idea of like, hey, World Cup. Brazil. There's got to be a book there, right? And I was like, sure, that's great. And I just, it became an incredible experience of just learning about a country that, you know, is bigger than the continental United States that has 200 million people and it has one of the largest economies on earth. And learning about the ways in which the World Cup and the Olympics are being used as a kind of, a, I, I use the phrase, a neoliberal Trojan horse as this way to actually get, push people out of their homes. Uh, to increase the militarization of Brazilian society, um, increase surveillance on people, and use sports as an excuse, as a way to really just run ramshackle over people's lives. And when you, when you couple that with Brazil's incredibly complex and interesting history of resistance and repression and culture, like it, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I'll, t I'll be straight up like, and I, as I'm writing the, 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 the introduction of the book is called Brazil is Not for Beginners. And that's what somebody said to me when I sat down with him in Rio to interview him. And he, because he started by saying to me, he was a professor, and he said, so what do you know about uh, Brazil? And I say, well, nothing. I'm trying to learn so I can write a book. And he looks at me and he goes, Brazil is not for beginners. <laughs> and, and, he, and it is absolutely true. And, but what I'm hoping with the book, really hoping, is that it can be a primer for people who are like me a couple of years ago who knew just the most superficial about Brazil, because I, I deep sea dived this thing. I read everything I could get my hands on. I interviewed everybody I could. I, I lived in, and toured the favelas um, in Rio, and, and hopefully I wrote it in such a way that it's like seen through the eyes of someone who really doesn't know shit. So other people who don't know shit can have that sort of in, very elemental <coughs> learning process about what is Brazil, because Brazil is the future. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Brazil is the future. And I mean, in learning about a country that, you know, by the, by, in the mid-late 19th century at one point was a majority slave country in Brazil. Like learning about a country that has more people of African descent of anywhere on earth outside of Africa. It has more people in Sao Paulo, has more people of Japanese descent of anywhere outside of Japan. It's got more Italian people of anywhere outside of Italy. I mean, this is Brazil. And it's our, our future is inextricably tied up with it. The Sochi thing is really important. First of all, like, like there are a couple things. I, I, I talked to a couple of athletes who, bef who before they went said, there is gonna be some serious bleep that happens in Sochi. And if it doesn't happen, just know that somebody got to us. And that's what was said to me. And so I watched waiting for it to happen. And then the, the somebody got to us thing was, uh, apparently as simple as people being spoken to by their Olympic committees saying that if you do this, you're going to be sent home, you're going to be stripped of anything that you won, and that's going to be it for you. And that doesn't sound like 
you know, exactly like facing down dogs or water hoses in Selma. You know, it doesn't sound like that intense. But I think we have to realize also that a lot of these athletes, I mean, there, there's a great article that was written in The Nation by uh, an Olympian named Samantha Retrosi, and people should read it. And it's really about, she was an Olympian in 2006, and she writes about um, like the fact that you're basically a full-time Olympian from the time you're 11 years old. Uh, you go into sponsorship training. Most Olympians have no money when they go into this. There's no government funding for the U.S. Olympic Committee. It's all through private sponsors. And th this idea of like being like heavily conditioned from childhood to not make waves um, is something that's just very real in the 21st century that's just different than it was in the 1960s for a host of reasons. And so that would be the number one reason I'd give. I think they, they were, it was a very fragile thing that people had planned and it was snapped pretty easily by people who didn't want to see anything. But I would also point out that the Olympics are not just the Olympics, there's also the Paralympics. And I just wrote about this. The Paralympics had several politi very political moments that involved Ukrainian and Russian athletes um, doing acts of solidarity side by side um, as a way to show their general opposition to any war and any death. And when you couple on the fact that the Paralympics in the last 15 years or so have basically become a place, not majority, but like a huge number of the competitors at the Paralympics are, are vets who've lost limbs. Um, the US team, um, 18 of the 50 people we sent over there were people who've lost limbs in Iraq or Afghanistan. And, and in other countries, it's sometimes more profound. The, Cambodian, uh, the Cambodians have amazing Paralympic teams. Why? Landmines. And so it's, so it's like for this place, which has become, you know, really just really a site of rehabilitation for people rebuilding their bodies, their minds, and their lives. I mean, what more powerful place for people to stand up and say no to war? So it's really a, an amazing spectacle and very brave. And they didn't care about the, the Olympic committees or whatnot either. This question here is about Zyron's thoughts on athletic merchandise sponsorships. No, I mean, uh, just a couple of points. First of all, the person who mentioned Sonny Vaccaro, he used to be the rep for Nike, and he's somebody who's, yeah, like who's credited or slimed with starting the whole idea of like shoe money becoming a huge part, not just of college basketball, where these players, the shoes that they wear in March Madness, like at the top schools like Duke, that's a couple of million dollars going in Mike Krzyzewski's pocket, because his, and he's wearing wingtips. He's not wearing Nikes, but the players are advertising him running up and down the court. But the shoe game really affects the youth leagues, um, AAU, and it's seen by many as, as a very corrupting influence. I'll give Sonny Vaccaro, since you mentioned him, a lot of credit, because I've interviewed Sonny before. And the thing about Sonny is he's like, the money is there, give it to the kids. You know, and that to me is it's like, it's much more honest, like it's ugly, and it's crazy how we've commodified sports for children. The professionalization of youth sports makes me nauseous. But as long as it's professionalized, the idea that you would make the exploitation even deeper by actually then making them just these sort of unpaid indentured servants running up and down advertising shoes, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just really sick. And, you know, it's like Michael Jordan said, you know, he said Republicans buy sneakers too. It's like the power of the shoe industry is, in many respects, all powerful uh, in sports. And it's not a good thing. I mean, some of the favorite articles I, I, I remember writing are, was about Stefan Marbury, the basketball player you may remember from the T-Wolves, and his effort to produce a shoe that would only cost kids like a couple of bucks. So, yeah, yeah. And it didn't quite get off the ground 
but which is too bad. And but Stefan Marbury was awesome about it. So he created this shoe. It was like he got went into partnership with it. It was going to be so kids in his neighborhood in Coney Island could buy the shoes. So no one would have to stick each other up for shoes. So shoes wouldn't be such an exploitation. I even interviewed the people who did it, and they they were like they outlined their business practices for the factories and whatnot, all the stuff. And LeBron James, who then was very young, he was like 20 years old at the time, he made fun of the shoe. And he was like, you can't play in those shoes. I mean, I would be scared to play in something that wasn't a Nike or something like that. And they asked Stefan Marbury about what LeBron said. And he said, this is what Stefan said. He said, well, I guess I'd just rather own than be owned. The last question of the night comes from an audience member commenting that a lot of people in the sports world deny that there are politics in sports. And it seems that a lot of women's sports receive a lot less attention than men's. What does Dave Zirin think about this? Um, you're absolutely right. That speaks to two things. First, the social question of women in sports. And the second, I have to say, is like you guys have an amazing resource here locally at the University of Minnesota. It's called the Tucker Center. Um, that so, like the woman, Mary Jo Kane, Nicole Lavoy, the people who do are just like some amazing thinkers. And they, this is what they do is they write about women's sports and they produce um, videos and documentaries and it's all brilliant. And please, please go there, especially if this is something that, if you want your rage to cohere, it's a great place to go. Um, but the, the, the last thing I would just say, though, about sports and politics is that when you hear people still say this all the time, that you know, sports and politics should remain separate. And anytime you hear someone say that, just understand that what they're really saying is that sports and a certain kind of politics should remain separate because when it comes to the politics of militarism, sexism, hyper-nationalism, I come from a town where the football team is a racial slur for goodness sakes. When, you come, when it comes to those kinds of politics, they're only far too happy to traffic in those. So wear your politics proudly and enjoy your sports with an edge. So thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it. Bye. That's it from our Southdale Library event with Dave Zirin. Catch our next club book with Brian Freeman at Rum River Library in Anoka on Monday, April 7th, 2014, 7 p.m. Meet Brian Freeman, gear questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season on our Clubbook Facebook page. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to the Hennepin County Library for hosting Dave Zirin and to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>